Well, as we come to the Word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come to you asking for your grace. We are indeed a debtor daily, that we draw from our bank account of grace each and every second of every day. For we do not have the strength that we need to stand upon our own. We need your strength. We need your help. We need your mercy and your grace. And so we happily draw upon that even now. As we approach your word, we ask that you would please direct our attention, direct our hearts to what you have written in your holy and inspired word. And Father, may you teach us what you want, that we might have our lives conformed according to it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been said that it's more significant that God walked on the earth than man walked on the moon. It's more significant that God walked on the earth than man walked on the moon. It's easy for us and for humanity in general to be amazed by human achievements and events, and yet we gloss over the greatest event in all of history. As we know, our society is increasingly disinterested with Jesus. Even though he was God in human flesh, he is ignored and rejected as irrelevant for their lives. But they do this to their own peril. Jesus presented himself as the great Son of God and Son of Man. He is indeed at the center point of all of history. He may be ignored or rejected today, But he is the one chosen by God to one day to judge the living and the dead. Everyone will face Jesus. But how we relate to Jesus today determines whether we will face him as judge or as savior. How we relate to Jesus is crucially important for our eternity. And he presented himself this way to first century Israel, as recorded in the gospel accounts. He appeared on the scene announcing himself to be the spirit-anointed Messiah, the one who was long promised by the prophets who could redeem Israel. Some of them, of the audience there in that first century, heard that and were enthusiastic, and they repented of their sin, turned from the way they were living, and chose to follow Jesus as their Lord and King. But others hardened their hearts and refused to bow the knee to him. And others were still asking questions, trying to figure things out. And this is what we're going to see in our passage this morning that we began two weeks ago. Easter caused us to have to break up our passage here, but we're going to pick up where we left off in Luke chapter 7. So I encourage you to turn your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 7. Either tap there or turn there, or there is a Bible in the pew rack directly in front of you. If you don't have one already, you can find our passage on page 1026, page 1026 of that pew Bible. We're going to see different ways that people relate to Jesus. Some of them are positive, some of them are negative, but it's important that we look at these responses and different ways that people relate to Jesus so that we would understand where we stand with Christ ourselves. So follow along as I read our passage this morning. Luke chapter 7, we'll be beginning in verse 18, reading through verse 35. 
It says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. He answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all, this, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children." So again, this morning, we're going to continue what we started two weeks ago, and that is we're going to look at three lessons in relating to Jesus that help us to see what is at stake in our own relationship to the Lord. Three lessons about relating to Jesus that will help us to see what is at stake in our own relating, in our own relationship to the Lord. The first lesson that we saw last week, and I'll just review this briefly this morning, and that is first the propriety of questioning Jesus the propriety of questioning Jesus, and we see this in verses 18 through 23. This is, by propriety, I mean the appropriateness of it. It is proper and okay to question Jesus, and we see this exemplified by John the Baptist himself. As we said last time, John was in prison. John the Baptist was in the dungeon in the fortress of Herod Antipas, and he, as he's there in prison, having completed his ministry, he's beginning to have doubts. He had had a, a, such a phenomenal ministry of preaching to Israel and crowds flocking to him, and yet now he is languishing in a prison. Can you imagine what you might have been thinking if that were you? What's going on? I thought I was announcing that the Messiah was here, and now this Messiah is here, and here I am still in this dungeon. But part of John's message was that Jesus 
would come with judgment and with fire. He had called people to repent, and they, he, he said that if you don't repent, he's coming with his winnowing fork, and he's going to judge and sift Israel, and you better be ready. You better turn from your sin and repent, otherwise he's going to judge you with fire. And so John's hearing the reports from his disciples about this Jesus and his preaching ministry and his healing ministry, and he's going, where's the fire? Where's the judgment? Is this really the one that I was supposed to announce? I I, I thought it was, but it doesn't seem to be this great upheaval and this great reversal that I thought was coming. And so John is confused. His faith begins to waver, and he sends messengers to go talk to Jesus, two messengers to go ask Jesus, are you truly the one, or should we wait for somebody else? He's wondering if he got something wrong. And John does the right thing with his doubt. He goes to Jesus directly with it. He doesn't sit in his doubt. He doesn't continue to to wallow in it and languish in his doubt, but he seeks to find answers to his questions. And for that, he sends messengers to Jesus. These messengers come to Jesus. They're representing John officially. And Jesus, upon hearing the question, then doesn't answer them right away, but turns and begins to do miracles. Verse 21 says that in that hour, he healed many people of diseases. He says, hold on a minute, messengers. And he goes and begins to heal and fills the hour with these wondrous things. And so in this, he's dealing graciously with John. John's questions, am I really the one? And Jesus says, in essence, look for yourself. Look at what I'm doing. Look at the power that is coming for me as as blind people receive sight, as lame people. People begin to walk again. These miracles are not just because he's a wonder worker that make them significant, but it's the connection to the scriptures. It's connection to the Old Testament that is important, and that's where Jesus goes next in verse 22. He says, go and tell John that these things are happening, and he quotes from Isaiah 35 and 61, showing these things are taking place, not just because I'm an amazing guy, Because I'm here to fulfill Scripture. I'm here to do what was promised of me. God is doing something amazing through me, the Son of God. And so Jesus came announcing the good news of the kingdom, chapter 4 says. He began preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Matthew records that both John and him were preaching that the kingdom was at hand, that it was near. It's right here, Israel. I, the king, can bring in the kingdom if you would but accept me and repent of your sin. And so he preached this good news of the kingdom and performed miracles to show that he was indeed the one that had the power to bring in that kingdom age. He called people to repent and to believe in him and to turn to him. But as we mentioned last time, I don't believe it was here in this part of his ministry that he inaugurated or set up his kingdom. He was giving previews of the kingdom that could come if Israel would believe and accept in him. Now some would teach that through these miracles by Jesus doing these things, there was a breaking in of the kingdom, that Jesus uh, was saying that the kingdom has begun in some sense. But I believe that 
from our understanding of the Gospels that the kingdom was not established at Jesus' first coming, but will be established when he returns again. And Matthew 25, verse 31 says, when he comes in glory, he will then sit upon his glorious throne, and at that point, the kingdom will be established. And so, I need to clarify something that I said two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I gave a quick rapid fire three reasons why I don't believe that these miracles is a teach or show us that the kingdom was established and I believe that I misspoke and inadvertently communicated something that I did not intend and so I say these again just for the point of clarity for those of you that might have went home scratching your heads. The first th reason that I had said that I believe these miracles are not specifying the establishment of the kingdom at this time was I said that the miracles were not permanent and some of you were going what not permanent and what <clears throat> it sounded like is that I was saying that Jesus healed somebody and then 24 hours later their condition reversed or that it didn't quite last it was just kind of this temporary fling and then it it it, it went away and that's not what I intended to communicate when Jesus gave sight uh, they kept their sight. When they were, uh, the lame were healed and they could walk, they could continue to walk. Uh, and when the dead were raised to life, they were truly alive, not just for 24 hours or some short period of time like that. But what I meant was that these miracles did not completely and totally reverse the curse for these people. The people that were raised to life, they eventually had to die again. The people that had new sight, those eyes eventually closed in death. Those who walked, eventually uh, the, the deterioration of age would have still come upon them later on in life. And so we see that this newness, this healing was a sampling and it was true for what it was at that moment, but it didn't obviously last on into eternity. But when the, when the kingdom truly comes, the newness will be a forever reality is what I intended to say two weeks ago. The second reason that I gave in just in review is that if the kingdom was established then at this point of Jesus' ministry, then, the, uh, then there would still be kingdom miracles like this today because the kingdom would be present today. We believe that these sorts of healings, this sort of reversing of the curse will happen when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom at that point. And finally, the third reason I gave, and again, just point of review, is that later on in Jesus' ministry, he begins talking about uh, that his kingdom was future. That he's, in fact, in Luke chapter 19, he's getting near Jerusalem, and he tells a parable because his disciples are thinking that the kingdom is coming soon, that the inauguration of the kingdom is happening soon, and so he needs to clarify that with a parable. As I already mentioned Matthew chapter 25 verse 31 says, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on this glorious throne and at that point the kingdom will be established. So, we believe that Jesus was here announcing himself to Israel, showing that he is indeed the promised one of Israel, the one that was prophesied through the Old Testament that he indeed is God's son, able to work amazing things. And John had questions, but Jesus ends in verse 23, he says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He says, John, if you trust me and believe in me and you're not offended by me, you will find blessing. And so even though you're there languishing in a prison, don't let that derail you from your faith and trust in me. 
You will find true blessing by continuing to believe that I indeed am the one. And so we, see, we saw from this the, the, the properness, the propriety of questioning Jesus. We can bring our doubts too to Jesus. We have questions in this age. We read the Bible. We, we see this great, grand language about what God is doing and planning to do. And yet sometimes in our own lives, the reality does not match expectation. And we have questions. And I believe the Bible is clear that those questions are okay. But we can't sit and, and just live in question land. We've got to go and pursue the answers to those questions to Christ and to the word of God. Jesus pointed John to the word. We too need to go to the word. And we saw that last time. Well, That's the first lesson that we see in this passage about relating to Jesus is the propriety of questioning Jesus. The second lesson we're going to see here is the privilege of knowing Jesus. The privilege of knowing Jesus. And we see this in verses 24 through 28. John Jesus has already said in verse 23, as I just mentioned, that there is a blessing to not being offended by Jesus. He says, in other words, trust me, believe in me, don't be offended by me. And Jesus is going to continue to give proof that to know Jesus Christ is indeed the greatest privilege in the world. Verse 24 says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He had just spoken some things to John's messengers and those messengers leave but there's a whole crowd that's there listening to him and he doesn't want them to be confused about who John is and about how John speaks about who he is in his messianic ministry and so he begins to speak that John was indeed a special man even though he sent disciples who were questioning and he might have had some doubt John was indeed a special guy And so he brings out this character and the specialness of John by asking some interesting questions of the crowd. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? He asked them, what was the reason that drew you out to John in the first place? Why did you get up and leave Jerusalem or leave the town that you're in and go out into the wilderness to go see this man? What drew you to him? Was it because he's a reed shaken by the wind? In other words, was he because he's a man easily swayed? A man weak in conviction? A man who's who's just there and, 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 and flows back and forth? Flimsy? Moving with every wind of doctrine that moves him around? As a rhetorical question, the answer is clearly no. That wouldn't draw anybody. Hey, let's go out and see a guy with no conviction out in the desert, right? You're not going to be able to put that on any brochure and get anybody out there. Okay. So no, that's not why they went out there. Verse 25, what then did you go out to see? Jesus continues to ask. A man dressed in soft clothing? He says, behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. He, He says, was John one of these, these rich, elite people that just live in luxury? Was he soft in his style? Was he untested by the rigors of life? Did he have no calluses on his hand? I believe implied in this is also asking whether he was effeminate and lacking in authority in the way that he spoke. Did he speak softly and weakly? Just kind of living on the outskirts of of, of a king and just kind of gleaning whatever riches and comforts he can get. 
Absolutely not. And the people know that. Jesus knows that. Hence the rhetorical question. In fact, Mark chapter 1, verse 6 says John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. That doesn't sound like a guy in luxurious soft clothing in the king's courts. Jesus knows that. The people know that. This guy was the roughest, toughest dude that was around. He lived out in the desert and ate locusts and wild honey, wore camel hair, and so these things could not be said of him. So verse 26 then, he continues to ask the question, continues to drive the point home. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus here drives home his point. These people went out to John because they believed that John spoke the words of God. They believed he spoke forth God's word. Therefore, he was a prophet, a true prophet. He says, listen, all of you, you went out to John because you believed John truly represented God. You believed he truly spoke for God. He was speaking the truth. But Jesus says he wasn't just a prophet. He says he was more than a prophet. Notice that. I believe what he's saying here is differentiating him from all the other prophets that came before throughout Israel's history as recorded in the Old Testament. All the other prophets looked forward to Jesus in faith. They looked forward to the Messiah. But John was able to see the Messiah in person. He was the forerunner to the Messiah. And this is why Jesus quotes Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, saying that John fulfills this role of being a forerunner to the Messiah. He started his ministry before Jesus and announced that Jesus was coming and prepared the people for Jesus to come. This was a unique role, a special role that no other prophet filled. And that is why Jesus can make this grand statement in verse 28. Look at it. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. None is greater than John. What is this greatness? It is a greatness of character. Is there no one else as godly as John? No, I, I think it's, as I just indicated, a greatness of his mission and of his role. He had a role that was unique. No one else was in that role. It was his, in fact, his proximity to Jesus that made him so great. No other prophet, as I said, could say that they saw the Messiah during their lifetimes. Not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, not Moses, but John could. But notice what Jesus says next in verse 28. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The one who is least significant in God's kingdom is greater than John. And so he just continues to up the ante even more. It's an amazing statement. He has just spoken so highly of John. People have heard and says, wow, there's no one greater than John. This is amazing. But then Jesus says there's a whole category of people that is greater than John himself. So we ask who these people are and what does it mean? We've already stated that the full establishment of the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom that Jesus came to establish is still awaiting a future day. 
But Jesus is saying that those who are included in that kingdom, those who are citizens of that kingdom, hold a privileged position even greater than those of an Old Testament prophet. As we said, Jesus is, is looking for that future time when he will be a kingdom, but he, he will establish his kingdom. But he's saying that all those who are included in that kingdom, who are a citizen of that kingdom, have a greater position than John. In fact, we know that John will one day be a part of that kingdom as well. And so you could say that the, the John of that future kingdom is greater than the John previous to that. What, what is Jesus saying here is that there is a transition taking place between the old system and the new system. That John is the last of an era of promise. The time where the prophets spoke of promises that, were gonna be, that are being made. Jesus brings about the time and the era of fulfillment. And therefore, there is a complete change. And for all those who live in this era of fulfillment, there is greater blessing. For us today, we are citizens of Christ's kingdom. Through the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, we have been renewed. And therefore, we have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And this is, called, this is what the Bible calls conversion, where we change allegiances, where we're no longer seeing ourselves and Satan as Lord, but we now see Jesus as Lord who sets the agenda for our lives. And so we, as citizens of the kingdom, gather together in the church, and we are essentially an embassy for a future kingdom. We represent a king who is going to return one day, and he's going to change this planet and, and rule upon this earth and he's going to make this planet like the Garden of Eden again of great and tremendous blessing. And so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want to see him come and bring about that change. And so I believe what Jesus is saying here is that everyone on this side of the cross enjoys a more privileged status than John himself. As citizens of the kingdom, we today experience a greater reality of the Spirit than John, a greater knowledge of forgiveness through Christ's atonement than John, and a greater intimacy with Christ himself through the Spirit. Everything before Jesus was the age of promise. We now live in the age of fulfillment. All of this comes to us because Christ is available to us, because Jesus has come was crucified, buried, and rose again so that new life could then be announced, forgiveness could be announced to the nations so that we can find forgiveness through him. We can share in this privileged status. The New Testament is clear that to know Jesus Christ is the greatest privilege in all the world that we can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. But we have Christ. Paul says in Philippians chapter three, verse eight, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Friends, there's nothing that compares to knowing Jesus. As you heard in the testimonies of, in the waters of baptism, these young people considered what the world had to offer and realized that it pales in comparison, that it does not deliver. It makes huge promises, but it cannot deliver upon those promises. Jesus delivers upon every single promise he makes. And that is a truth that we can carry with us through our lives and even face death with. 
In the early second century, there was a pastor named Ignatius who was a student of the Apostle John. And he said this as he faced suffering and death. He said, let fire and the cross, let the companions of wild beasts, let breakings of bones and tearing of members, let the shattering and pieces of the whole body and all the wicked torment of the devil come upon me. Only let me enjoy Jesus Christ. Friends, that is an otherworldly kind of statement. How can somebody say that? It's because of the radical nature of what Jesus does to a human heart. He changes us. He gives us a new life, a new perspective. enables us to face the most inhumane things with joy, with confidence, because we have Christ. It's a joy that outsurpasses all the rest. We don't turn away from joy to go to Jesus. We go to joy. We find our greatest joy in him. That is what our heart longs for, is found in Jesus. You may be familiar with the quotation of C.S. Lewis that Pastor John Piper likes to quote a lot that says that we spend all our time playing in the mud puddles of the slums because we have no idea what it's like to spend a holiday at the sea. We think that we love playing in this water and it's so great, but we're playing in mud puddles. That's all this world has to offer. Jesus is that ultimate fulfillment that satisfies every longing of our heart and gives us the greatest joy even through the storms of life. And so, we can see in this that we have Christ, and therefore, we know the privilege of knowing Jesus. But the final lesson for us in this text, quickly for us, is the perversity of rejecting Jesus. The third and final lesson in this text is the perversity of rejecting Jesus. Verse 29 says, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having baptized, been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized for him, uh, baptized by him. They, this is a, could be a parenthetical thought. It could also be a, a comment made by Jesus. Commentators go different ways on it. But the point is the same, is that there was a general acceptance by the common folk of Jesus' ministry, and there was a general rejection by the spiritual elite of John's ministry. The common people, including the down-and-outers and those who were despised within society, it says even the tax collectors, they were baptized by John. They accepted John's message, and they were baptized. Conversely, The spiritual elite, the religious leaders refused to be baptized by him. And therefore, these responses recorded here actually speak about a time previous when John was active in his ministry. It's just being pulled in here to describe different responses. But notice that what the people did with John, with his message, with the baptism, shows what they do with God. doesn't just, what you do with God's messenger shows what you do with God. That says that the people, even the tax collectors, declared God just. See that in verse 29? This means they literally justified God or vindicated God. And the essence is that they showed their agreement with God's righteous requirement. The law required righteousness. They admitted that they did not measure up. And therefore they went to baptism in a baptism of repentance. They happily admitted their failure to measure up to the law. 
But the Pharisees and the lawyers, those who were experts in the Mosaic law, on the other hand, he, he says, rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They turned away from God and they showed that they had turned away from God himself. Which is why Jesus, in verse 31, begins to describe this generation of Israelites and says this is a fundamental problem. There's something rotten at the core. He says, to what shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? And then he pulls in what commentators call the parable of the brats. The parable of the brats. Two children that are playing in the marketplaces and they can't be satisfied. They're just spoiled and they're whining and complaining to one another. They're calling out to their friends and their friends won't do anything and so they're complaining. It says, we played a, a, the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. They, essentially, they're saying this. They're saying, come on, you're no fun. You didn't want to do, you don't want to do anything. We tried playing some fun wedding music, which is, was often where the flute was played. And you didn't want to dance. So he said, okay, well, let's try to match your mood. And let's, let's play a funeral dirge. But you didn't want that either. Everything we suggest, you just shut down. You're just spoiled. You don't want to play anything. You're no fun. And so the truth behind this parable is that the people of Israel were behaving childishly and foolishly, and they refused to be pleased. They would not accept Jesus' ministry that was joyous and full of excitement. Neither would they accept John's ministry that was taught messages of, of, of asceticism and, and repentance and speaking about judgment, a more dismal message. They didn't like either one. And so he makes his point in verses 33 through 34. He says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. He lived an austere life. He ate no bread, as we said, locusts and wild honey. He drank no wine, which is exactly what the angel prophesied in Luke chapter 1, that this, this son, would, uh, son of Zechariah would drink no wine. And so they looked at John. He's this crazy guy, and they believe he's demonically inspired. He's so crazy, he's out of his mind. It must be explained by dark forces. But these religious leaders, you go, okay, okay, yeah, that's a crazy guy, I get it. Okay, well, we'll give you a guy who, who socializes and he's a little more easier and a little more joyous, a little more fun to be around. And so Jesus, verse 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Wisdom is justified by all our children. And so Jesus came eating, living a normal life. He interacted with all types of people including those who had sinful or unacceptable occupations, as the next story in our text next week is going to show, in which Jesus forgives a prostitute. But these people utterly failed. They utterly failed to see the grandeur of the king who was in their midst. The king of glory was walking amongst them, and they found excuses to reject him. They were dull. They were desensitized to the great spiritual issues of the hour. They had put forth the excuses that the style of ministry just didn't suit them. And, and, and that it was off-putting and it was wrong, both John and Jesus' ministry. But Jesus reveals it's their hypocrisy in their unbelieving hearts. 
You see, the problem wasn't the style of ministry. The problem was their unbelief. Their hearts were hard and stubborn, and they did not want to turn to God. They did not want to submit to him and to his word. And friends, hear me. This is the problem in every age. People may say that their reasons for unbelief is certain kind of ministry, the way a message was preached or portrayed. They may say it was the church that they grew up in did things a certain way, or they may say their parents reared them a certain way, but the reality is, is that when anyone rejects the gospel, it's because of a heart of unbelief. Certainly, there may be ways that we can communicate the gospel better, and we will always concede that. But the reality is that no one will stand before the judgment seat of God and be able to pull out an excuse and say, it was the way that it was communicated to me. It was the ministry that I sat under as a child. That's why I don't believe. And that excuse will not pass muster. We will all be held accountable for our own sins before the judge of all the earth. This is a scary reality, and I do not say it for dramatic effect. I simply say it to communicate the truth. And the, and the scary thing here, folks, is that it can be religious people. It was those who most knew the Bible here that were the most hardened to the truth. And this is the scary reality, is that those who can be outwardly spiritual can be some of the most lost. They can say the right things. They can know their Bibles. They can go to the right church events and answer the questions appropriately. But they've never repented and they've never believed. And so, friends, we must examine ourselves. Is there a heart of unbelief that sits within us that's holding off Jesus, that's, that's pushing him away. The, the scriptures are clear that we need to, need to look within ourselves to see if there's an evil, unbelieving heart causing us to fall away from the living God. We must look to see where we are at. Do we trust in Jesus and the sacrifice he gave upon the cross or are we trusting in our own righteousness? Friends, there's a question that we all need to grapple with, and it's this. If we were to die tonight, if you were to die tonight, and you were standing before the gate of heaven, and God were to ask, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What answer would you pull out? Because there's only one acceptable answer. And I want you to be certain of that answer to know what it is that enables us to have access to heaven. And it has everything to do with what you do with Jesus, whether you know him or whether you reject him. For those of us that believe in Christ, we know that he has set up his church and given us two ordinances, and so we're gonna close our time this morning by partaking in communion together. It's not every Sunday that we get to participate in the two ordinances that God gave his church. But this Sunday, we got to witness baptism, and now we get to end with the Lord's table. Both of these ordinances point to the Lord's death. As people go down in baptism, they are identifying with Christ. They're going down in the waters as if they are buried with Christ and then they are coming up 
signifying new life with Jesus. In the same way, we partake of communion together, also pointing to the sufferings of Christ, also pointing to his death for us. Baptism is performed once. The Lord's Supper is to be a regular, continuing practice. And so as we come to the Lord's table today, we're reminded of the Lord's death in a very visceral way, right? There's two elements. One representing the body of Christ. One representing the blood of Christ. Both of these relating to his death and his crucifixion. Jesus told us to partake of this so that we as his people in every age until he returns, we would not forget his death. We would not forget the significance of his death. And it would be a regular reminder for us of what Jesus did on our behalf. When we forget the cross and we forget the atonement that he accomplished for our sin, we have lost the message of Christianity. We have lost the core of our gospel message. And so we partake of this this morning to recognize, not just in a general sense, but an intimate sense, his body and his blood was shed for me and for you. Amen? Let's begin by taking the bread Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember Jesus this morning. And then preparing the cup. Jesus, when he's at the, the night he was betrayed, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. We know Christ. Amen? Let me just close this in a word of prayer. Our Father, we ask as we go that you'd please be with us and enable these truths to cement deep in our hearts. We ask that your spirit would work in us for your namesake. Amen. God bless you all. You are dismissed.